everybody. My name is Matt. It's great to be with you all. Uh, we are starting today a, a three-week series about showing compassion to other people. Um, how are we as followers of Jesus? How are we called to love and to serve and to meet like tangible needs of the hurting, the poor, the vulnerable, the overlooked uh, around us and in our city? There are a number of times actually in the Gospels where uh, Jesus is basically someone comes to him or a crowd gathers or he sees someone in need in front of him. And there's this common phrase that gets repeated. It says, it says Jesus moved with compassion, then goes on and he heals someone or he feeds a crowd or he meets a person at the point of their, their greatest need. And so Jesus, of course, as uh, as disciples of him, we want to become like him. We want to do what he did, and he's our model for what compassion in action looks like. And so I want to spend a few weeks here kind of fleshing this out, and if you have a Bible today and want to pull up Luke chapter 14, we're going to walk through a passage here. But I want to begin, before we get to the, to the doing, and we're going to get there, um, I want to begin with our motivation. And what is it that Jesus understood about the heart of God toward those in need that actually caused him to respond differently, to do things differently than, than pretty much everyone else? I mean, to the point where he actually got in trouble for who he showed compassion to and, and how he went about that. So today I want to lay the foundation that compassion uh, starts in our hearts. It starts with actually seeing people and maybe even ourselves uh, the way that God does. And then we'll, over the next few weeks, talk about how that, that starting point, can and should lead us to action. So we'll get into that, and as well as what this means for us as a church and where we sense God leading us uh, in this area for this year. So with that, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. So the scene is this. There's a dinner and the host is a Pharisee. And Luke tells us he's not just any Pharisee, he is a prominent well-respected Pharisee. And this guy apparently walks into the house who shows up, who suffers from some condition. Luke says this abnormal swelling of his body. Now, scholars will speculate on the man's condition and, you know, the exact nature of the bodily fluids that cause parts of his body to swell up or whatever. Here's the point, okay? The point is he wasn't invited to this dinner party. In fact, he never got invited to any party. Luke says in verse 1 that Jesus is being carefully watched. What's he going to do? Because again, it's on the Sabbath. And they had lots of rules around keeping the Sabbath. And one of them was you don't actually heal. I mean, that could be provide medical care for a person on the Sabbath unless their life is in jeopardy. Now, if Jesus is a polite guest, he will pretend not to notice this man. 
turns out Jesus isn't really all that polite. Uh, Because not only does he notice him, he actually calls everybody's attention. He says this, basically, everybody, could I have your attention? I want you to look over here at this man standing here that we're all pretending not to notice. So Jesus, he's supposed to be intimidated in this moment. He knows they're just trying to catch him making some kind of mistake. But this whole thing, it sets something off within him. Because here are all these people who claim to know and to love God who don't care about this man. And so Jesus, in front of everyone, touches this man, heals him, and and sends him on his way. I find it interesting that the host does not celebrate this. I mean, they're all sitting there now in this moment in incredibly awkward silence. Once again, if Jesus is at all socially sensitive, he will quickly change the subject right about now. Watch what he does instead. Verse 5. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And then Jesus waits for their response, which is rather underwhelming because look at verse 6. And they had nothing to say. So let me just ask you, is this like a, a comfortable silence? No, this is a very awkward moment. There's lots of tension in the room. But here, I think, is what Jesus is asking with this. How much is this man worth? How much is a single human being worth? Someone whose body isn't working all that well or who doesn't look all that good. Jesus is saying, you all claim to love God. You claim to demonstrate that by how much you're valuing the Sabbath. But the reality is, if your child fell into a well on the Sabbath, you'd pull the kid out. Not even if it was just your, a kid, if your ox or sheep or whatever fell in, you would rescue it. Why? Because it's yours. Because it means something to you. It has value to you. That actually transcends your customs and your rules around the Sabbath. Jesus' point is, well, this man is God's child. And so does anybody here have the moral compass? Does anybody here have the courage to speak up on behalf of a child of God who has this disability? Apparently not. There's more silence. I mean, this is just, it's, it's brutal. Again, it's very, very awkward. The host who called the dinner is probably now going, can somebody else please talk? And maybe pick like a safer topic. Jesus talks next. He does not pick a safer topic. And and keep in mind, this is all over the course of like one very painful dinner. Verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. 
Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's like Jesus has observed, you know, people are coming in, just trying to figure out where they're, they're pecking order. Who sits next to the host, and how close can I get, and all things that were a big deal in this culture. He sees all this going on, this kind of elbowing for position. And then he goes, hey, let me tell you a parable. And it's really not a very good parable. It's just, it's like, it's more like unwanted advice is what he offers. Uh, he says, when someone invites you to a feast, don't sit in the seat of honor, like sit at the kid's table. Humble yourself. He says, you think that some people have more worth than others based on status or accomplishment or who's the most successful, that other people don't have as much worth. And Jesus simply says, hey, let me redo your, your whole seating chart. Maybe you, maybe you could exalt someone else for a change. And so I'm, I'm guessing they're all embarrassed, maybe furious. I mean, one thing's for sure is that nobody has any idea where to sit now, so that's confusing. This prominent host is now, I'm guessing, he's thinking, I really hope, because this is, I really hope he doesn't have any more advice. And Jesus turns to the host and he says, and another thing. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to, to his host, when you give a luncheon or, or a dinner, and I, every time I read this, I have to think to myself, if Jesus really said the word luncheon, come on. If he said the word luncheon, I have to rethink everything that I, I thought I knew about him. But anyway, when, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, that's better, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus is not saying don't ever have dinner with your friends or relatives or neighbors. He's just giving an illustration of what life in the kingdom of God looks like contrasted with life in this world, though. Uh, conventional wisdom, how things normally operate. And he's, he's simply saying, in the kingdom of God, which is now present in and through him, you don't always look out after yourself and what's best for you and, and how much worth you have and all that. And so Jesus says, the next time you have dinner, first invite the poor. That would have been a little bit unusual, but not unheard of. That could have been seen by the Pharisees as actually potentially a virtuous thing to do in the right context. But then he goes on, and he says, also invite the crippled, the lame, the blind. And let me tell you, that is a whole different thing for them. For the Pharisees, anything malformed, anything quote-unquote defective was basically deemed incapable of reflecting the, the perfection or the holiness of a perfect, holy God. And so it's why we have these commands and various things in the Old Testament. Nothing imperfect was allowed inside the precincts of the temple. Well, the Pharisees took that idea and, and, and really ran with it because one of the things at the heart of their whole movement 
It was this idea that if they could follow in their own homes, in their houses, the temple regulations, um, then maybe, uh, let me say it this way, they thought the current temple has been corrupted by the Romans, so maybe we can gain some ground by just making our homes like the temple and following all the stipulations in our home, our home becoming a miniature temple. Perfect. So for Jesus to tell this prominent Pharisee to invite the cripple, the lame, the blind into his holy little personal temple, for them it's going way too far. Plus there was the belief in this day that if you had something wrong with you physically, that perhaps you or your parents had sinned to cause that. There's a whole scene about that in John chapter 9. Uh, which I would just comment is a very convenient worldview to have if you've inherited the good life. Well, at this point, one of the guests, I think, tries to rescue the host, tries to get him off the hook because he's in the spotlight, and he tries to distract Jesus with a religious platitude. Look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, that's something that they all believed, that the arrival of God's kingdom would be like a great banquet, a great feast. But here's what I think is going on here. I don't think it's nearly as flat and as pious, because it sounds like he's saying, oh, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast, like some kind of holy thing that you could say. I don't think that's what he's doing at all, at all. I think this guy is going, all right, I can't stand this anymore, Jesus We may not agree on who's going to be at the great banquet, at the great feast, but come on, everybody, let's raise our glasses to the feast of the kingdom. Let's party. (laughs) Help me out, right? Can we get the focus off of us here and onto something else? Heaven, you know. Verse 16, Jesus replied, thank you for bringing up the banquet because that reminds me. (laughs) A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. That one, to me, is actually seems like an okay excuse, but apparently not. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in, here we go again, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And so in this parable, all the people you would expect to be at the banquet, all those who initially committed to being there, They don't show up. Not only that, but the excuses that that they give are so flimsy that they're almost deliberately insulting or trying to humiliate the host, the master. But here's the thing. Everybody at this table knows what Jesus is saying, that Jesus is claiming this, that God is bringing his feast. God's bringing his party, his kingdom through Jesus. And all those people who you would think would say yes are shockingly saying no. The master in the parable takes that rejection personally. 
Um, but he does this odd thing. He does this, I think, really unexpected but beautiful thing. He actually expands the guest list. He says, go out into the streets and alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And they're just like, them again. He can't let it go. And the servant does this and then notices there are still empty spaces around the table. Look at verse 22. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. So first sweep through the village, there's still room. The master says, leave the village, go to complete strangers, go to people we don't even know and compel them. And this idea is really important in the kind of hospitality culture of the first century uh, Middle East. Because outsiders living in poverty would basically be really afraid to show up at the banquet of a rich nobleman. They would assume they did not deserve to be there. They'd never want to give an answer in this culture that would communicate any sense of, like, entitlement. And so politeness, custom in this culture would mean that they would naturally deflect, naturally insist on declining this kind of invitation. And so the master knows all these people are going to say, whoa, 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 not me, not him, definitely not there. And so the master says to his servant, you have to tell them, you have to make them believe that I want them. You got to convince them that this is not some kind of a trick. Tell them, I don't care what your social standing is. I don't care what your ability level is, your income, your religiosity is or isn't. Tell them this is a free-for-all. Anyone who wants a feast, come here because I want my house full. And I have the ability to feed everyone. So, Jesus starts this whole scene by healing this man with this issue who wasn't invited to their dinner party. Then he tells them to invite instead the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Then he tells them this parable about the great banquet. And again, all the wrong people being compelled to show up. And I imagine they're just looking at Jesus like dumbfounded, perhaps even outraged. Like, where is this guy getting these crazy ideas about how to treat other people? And so here's my question. What was it about Jesus? What is it about Jesus? And the way that he fundamentally sees people. What is it about the way he views people that then leads him to respond in a way, to demonstrate compassion in a way that, again, nobody else was doing? It's like Jesus was starting at a, with like a whole different set of assumptions than the people around him. That when Jesus looked at the poor or the afflicted or those who were down on their luck, he saw something that many people seem to have overlooked in his day. I think Jesus saw the image of God in them. That he never looked at a person, whether it was a, a leper or a prostitute or tax collector or Gentile, without seeing this reflection, this image of God within them. Without seeing a person that was known and loved deeply by his heavenly Father. I think that changed the way because he believed that in his core, the way that he treated each person he encountered. 
By the way, all of this actually has its roots in the Old Testament, in God's calling of, of Israel. God calls Israel, and over and over, God says, hey, when it comes to like these four categories, I want you to be very, very careful. When it comes to how you treat widows, orphans, uh, immigrants, or aliens, it's called in the Old Testament, and the poor. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Because in the ancient world, there was no support system for them. They had no chance. But again, God says, I made them in my image. And I love them. And so wherever there are my people or my kinds of a community, I want you to especially look out for people who are going to get otherwise thrown away by society. That's exactly what Jesus does. And actually, in his, in his ministry, I think in a lot of ways, he's fulfilling that calling on Israel. He's doing what Israel could never get around to do, at least very consistently or for very long. I think Jesus is saying with his teaching and with his life, I think he's saying this world's treatment of human beings has been weighed by my father and it's found wanting. And now he, he says the kingdom of God is present through him, through his life, through his teaching. And so Jesus believed every person that came to him was cherished by God, was, was valued, was taken seriously. And you see this constantly throughout Jesus' ministry, his life, every encounter that he has. There's this honoring, this regard, this respect for individuals. Um, it's actually very difficult to find anybody in ancient literature, sacred or otherwise, who does what we see in Jesus. In his parables, in his healings, in his conversations, and how he treats people, who he sits down to a table for fellowship with. Over and over, he's bringing the marginalized in. He's lifting up the lowly. Because again, he sees people the way God does. He sees them as made in the image of God, in immeasurably valuable to their heavenly father. And it moves him with compassion. John Ortberg, in his book, Who Is This Man?, he traces a, a few ways that Jesus has impacted our world when it comes specifically to areas around human dignity and the inherent worth of an individual made in the image of God. And I want to share just a few of his examples. This idea that every person is made in the image of God, what theologians call the imago dei, and therefore every person has incredible dignity and worth. That idea, Ortberg says, is, is woven so deeply into our minds and our culture, we, we actually take it for granted. Uh, we actually don't even realize the significance at times. Um, here's one example he gives. Take, uh, for example, from the Declaration of Independence, the line, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There are a lot of ideas in here, right? But to say that all people are created equal, in the ancient world, they didn't believe that. It certainly wasn't considered self-evident. People, by the way, in many, if not most places, in most times, did not always believe that we were created uh, in a creator God who, who gives us worth, who gives us inherent value, 
and inherent rights. Aristotle, for example, he wrote that inequality, that subjugation, a master and a slave, he said, that's the natural order of things. Aristotle said, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. He said, this is necessary. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. There's a Yale philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff. Wolterstorff, okay. Also happens to be a Christian uh, in his book, Justice. He says this, we all now take for granted our moral subculture of rights. We are oblivious to how extraordinary it is that we should recognize human rights and person rights. His argument is that throughout history, you go way, way back, uh, people tend to be tribal all the way back to ancient times, that we don't think of outsiders as having the same worth or the same rights or value. And so his question was this, what could possibly account for the emergence of this odd thing, this moral subculture that says that every human being, no matter what, has rights, has value? And I think he gives a pretty remarkable answer for where that comes from. He says that it's the teaching, actually beginning with the Hebrew scriptures, and then clarified, made available to a broader world through Jesus, that every human being has been made by God, by the God, in the image of this God. That one idea has changed the way we've thought about people. Jesus brought dignity to the individual. Every person is loved by this God. In the ancient world, of course, slavery was universal. Unlike the later kinds of slavery that happened in, in America, back then it had almost nothing to do with a person's race. It could happen to anybody, and it often did. A slave back then was a, quote, non-habens personum according to Roman law, which literally translates not having a person or not having a face. In this world, a man named Paul, devoted to the way of Jesus, comes along and he says this. Can you imagine this? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Because we're all one. We're all just one in him. Um, Thomas Cahill, who's a, a brilliant historian, I've read several of his books, he says, this is the first statement of egalitarianism in human history. In history, the first time anybody ever said anything like this. You can't find anything else like it in the ancient world. There's an early church order. It's called the Didascalia Apostolorum. You could pick that up at the library on your own time. Uh, it instructed the bishops. It said this, when a, when a person of means or status or wealth interrupts your church gathering, they come in late, don't do anything differently. Don't acknowledge that, that they're coming in late. However, if a poor man or woman enters the assembly, it says this, the bishop is to do whatever they need to do to welcome that person in, even if it means the bishop is then sitting on the floor. Because the seating chart 
was actually changing. Can you imagine this? This would happen in the early church. A slave would wander in, and one of the rich or the powerful would get down on his or her knees and take a basin and a towel and wash the feet of someone regarded as a non-person officially by the law. You say, you're a, you're a son, you're a daughter of the king. Gregory, an early church father and the bishop of Nyssa, in the 300s, says this. This is actually a famous sermon that he preaches. He says, how many obols, and that's a form of ancient currency, for the image of God. How many staters did you get for selling the God-formed human being? For Jesus Christ, who knows the worth of human nature, has said, an entire cosmos is not worthy to be exchanged for a human soul. Who can buy a man or sell a man once you realize he's in the image of God? It took a long time. Over time, we're still not there, but over time, followers of Jesus, when they would look at, the, at these kinds of social structures, they would begin to say, wait a minute, I don't think slavery is the right way to reflect the worth and the value of every human being. A guy named John Newton, who made his money, who built his career buying and selling people, met Jesus. And over the years, this didn't happen overnight. But it, it changed his perspective on everything. He wrote a song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He said, that's me. I'm going to give my life to, to making a difference. There was a politician named William Wilberforce. He also became a follower of Jesus. And actually, Wilberforce went to John Newton for some career advice. He said, hey, I think I'm going to get out of politics. I've had enough. It's just way too corrupt. And Newton said, no, you need to stay there and you need to devote your life to the abolition of slavery. And Wilberforce did. He fought for decades to end slavery. He died fighting it. And when the British Parliament finally did outlaw it in 1833, it was one month after Wilberforce's death. Jesus also changed the way that we look at children. In the ancient world, when a child was born, it could simply be left outside to die. And get this, nobody thought that was scandalous. Nobody thought that was terrible. Because, it, again, it's what people saw when they looked at an infant. They saw something disposable. Roman, the Roman writer Seneca said, We drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. The most common reasons given for this practice, it was called exposure, uh, were poverty or when a wealthy family had too many kids and they didn't want to divide their, they didn't want to divide the inheritance among that many heirs or if a child had physical imperfections, if a baby was the wrong gender, they could just leave the child exposed to die. It's just the way the world worked. It's what people saw when they looked at a child, except for this small community. They remembered, they followed somebody who said, don't keep the children away. You let them come to me. And he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. And so these Jesus followers said, we will love little children, even if they're not ours. G.K. Chesterton wrote that the elevation of the dignity of childhood that happened, this would have made no sense 
to the ancients. It came to the world through Jesus. Monastic communities became places where if someone didn't want a child, they could bring the child and know it would be taken care of. In other words, instead of abandoning the kid in the woods, they began leaving them outside of a church. The average life expectancy back then was like 30s or 40s, and so that meant the world was full of of orphans. But for the first time, a community of Christians began to collect money to care for, for these kids. It's the beginning of what would be known later as orphanages, usually associated with a monastery or a cathedral at first. There are so many more examples of this, but all I'm trying to say is this notion, this idea that every individual, regardless of whether or not we have an ethnic connection, whether or not there's a family relationship, whether or not they're part of my tribe, regardless of their intelligence, their status, their physical whatever or wealth, that every person is of sacred and immense worth. That is an idea that came to our world largely through the person of Jesus. It's influenced our world in countless ways. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be a Christian today to believe that every person has inherent worth or dignity. I am saying that we owe that belief to a large extent and in ways we may not be fully aware of to the influence of Jesus. I will be the first to admit that followers of Jesus, that the church has gotten this horribly wrong at times. Um, There are things in church history that make it seem like Christians have never even heard of Jesus, let alone committed to actually following and doing what he says. The Crusades, the Inquisition, slavery, racism, the oppression of women, anti-Semitism, and on and on. These are not things to be proud of. But I, I do, I do want to say those are not like Jesus' fault. Um, there's a historian named John Somerville, and he says that when the Anglo-Saxons first heard the Christian, like the gospel message, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't see how any society could possibly survive without putting, you know, fear and, and strength and power and self-regard as the top values. And so they tended at times to mix the teaching of Jesus with their older practices. So they supported the Crusades as a way of, again, the way they saw the world. This is how we protect God's honor and our own, I suspect. Right? They said, hey, let's let the monks and the women cultivate like charitable virtue. Those things are not for honorable men of action. Okay, So you can see how we got ourselves in trouble. And there is so much to condemn in church history. I can even understand when people today use all of these examples to make the case that religion is actually to blame for all of the terrible evils and ills in our world. But, and and here's my point, to completely dismiss Christianity and Jesus because Christians aren't or haven't been uh, compassionate or showed mercy or treated people with dignity and humility I mean, giving up Christian ethics or values or these ideals because of the failure and the hypocrisy of Christians, I'm just suggesting if you throw away Christianity, ironically, in many ways, you're also throwing away the very foundation 
that you're standing on to make that criticism in the first place. It's Jesus and his movement that shaped in many ways what we value, in many ways what we consider virtuous today in the first place. And so, of course, the answer isn't to abandon the Christian faith. It's actually to move to a fuller and deeper understanding and commitment of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I think it's also worth noting that when Christians began to work for the abolition of slavery, that they didn't do it out of some generic, vague sense of quote-unquote human rights. They did it because they actually saw it as violating the will of God. That's what motivated them. They realized that the older forms of indentured servanthood, uh, the, the bond service that you see in biblical times, that, yeah, that had been harsh. But it was Christian abolitionists who concluded that race-based, lifelong slavery that came about through kidnapping was not and could not possibly fit with with biblical teaching, either Old or New Testament. Take the civil rights movement in the U.S. in the mid-20th century. When Martin Luther King Jr. confronted racism in the white church in the South, he did not call Southern churches to become more secular. He didn't say, let's move past like all this Jesus stuff. No. He invoked the God of Scripture He actually called white Christians to be more true to their own beliefs, to realize what the Bible really teaches. He said, speaking this truth, that we're all created in the image of God, this famous line, there are no gradations of the image of God. There may be gradations of capacity in different ways or different degrees of talent or strength or beauty or charm or intelligence or whatever, but there are no gradations of the image of God. He drew from the prophet Amos who said, let justice roll down like waters, righteousness as a mighty stream. King knew that the antidote to racism was not less Christianity. It was a deeper, truer, fuller commitment to actually doing the things Jesus said, actually following Jesus. I want to close with this. I think this is at the heart of what Jesus is saying in Luke 14, I think it's at the heart of the gospel, that the reason everyone, every person has great worth, according to Jesus, and I think Jesus believed this in his core, in every fiber of his being, that the reason every person has worth is because every person is loved by our Heavenly Father, created in his image, loved, regardless of anything we do or don't do. In other words, that every person has what you could call bestowed worth from God. I think the best illustration of this is um, maybe when you know a kid like this, or this was you when you were younger. You ever know a kid who got really, really attached to like a blanket or a stuffed animal or a toy or something? And they take it, they took it everywhere they went. And what happens is, both of my kids did this, the thing gets dirty ragged, full of holes, smells disgusting, is nasty. You just try to take that thing, though, take that thing away from that kid, and, and guess what happens? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Nice try. Because it's their most treasured 
possession. The thing just has bestowed worth. It, just, it means something just because. Because it does. Or maybe you get a pet or you've had a pet, you know, you've had it for years and it like, this doesn't even make sense anymore how much this animal means to this family. Or a house, and the house isn't even that great, but like, you come to love it just because it has bestowed worth. Why does God love his people? Deuteronomy 7 says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. Not because you were the best, not because you were the greatest, not because you're the most impressive. And God has to remind them of the reason why, and they forget this periodically. Verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God love Israel? Because. I mean, sometimes I think we forget this, that maybe God loves me because I'm, I'm special or I, I have something that other people don't have or whatever. No. He loves you. He loves me because. That's just who he is. He's just like a because kind of God. Just because. And his plan for Israel in this, in this account is that through them, his love and his blessing would then go on to every single person who God also loves because. That this because in the heart of God gives every person worth that you and I can't possibly imagine. People also, by the way, that we ignore or trample on to our own peril. The master in the parable sends the servant out and says, compel them. When they really get this, they're going to think this is too good to be true. So spare no effort to let them know how much I want them at my table. They don't have to do anything to get on the list. They literally don't have to bring anything to the table. And that's what God thinks about you. That's what God thinks about me. In fact, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, became an outsider so that we could become the insider. And so as we move through this series um, the next couple of weeks, I wanted to start with this because I've been asking this question, what keeps me from actually being moved with compassion? Moved to the point of action, and I think it has to start with how you and I see people. When I look at an individual, do I see someone made in the image of God, fundamentally, immeasurably loved by our Father in heaven? See, that might have a bearing on how I treat that person what I do or what I don't do. The problem for me is I'm busy and I've got my own problems. And sometimes I look at someone and I'm just, I'm quick to be judgmental. I'm quick to make up a backstory based on who knows what, past experience, but I don't actually know. I know that when I look at someone in need, someone who's vulnerable, someone who's afflicted or, or whatever it is, I know for sure I don't always see individuals the way Jesus did. That instead, I sometimes see chronic issues. I'm good at seeing broken systems. I see people who are making bad choices or at least doing things that, you know, I don't understand. But do I see what Jesus sees? Someone made in the image of God, someone God loves just because, in the same way that he loves me. 
And so compassion starts with us having the heart of Jesus. Um, by the way, as if, <laughs> if we could really grasp that this person that is in front of us has, is created in the image of God and is immeasurably loved just because by their creator, that would be enough to maybe change our posture. That could be enough to move us toward action. Jesus doesn't just stop with that. You know what he does? He does, he raises the bar so much higher than that, I can't even believe it. He says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Not only is that brother or sister a child of God, created in his image, when you do it for them, it's not what you would do for me, it counts as if it is me. I take that personally, you're doing it for me. Boy, that really challenges us, doesn't it? When I see someone in need, do I see an interruption? Do I see an inconvenience? Do I see, oh boy, how much is this going to cost in terms of my time, especially, maybe my money? Or do I see Jesus, God, in front of me? And so as we go out this week, I just want to leave us with this prayer. And I want to challenge you to pray this. Um, today, pray this throughout this week. If you want to just take a, it's very simple, but if you want to screenshot it to remember, here's the prayer for this week. And again, I think this is where all compassion starts. Jesus, help me to have your heart of compassion toward others. Please help me to see people the way that you do. People close to me, strangers, acquaintances, people I pass by, people I work with, please help me to see the people around me the way that you do. Can I encourage you to pray that? It kind of takes courage, right? Because he might, he might answer that prayer. And then that might move us to actually do something differently. But it starts with, with the, heart of, the heart of Jesus, with seeing like he sees. Would you stand with me and we'll pray? Um, Jesus, we are so amazed at, at your courage. We're so grateful for your unspeakably vast love. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we fail to see people the way that you do. Help us to see others the way you do. In fact, help us to see in them to actually see you. Lord, help us to love as we are loved by you, just because. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you all for being here. Have a great week, and I will see you next time for part two.